This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, April 15, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau will likely roll out regulations governing so-called payday loans this year. What does that mean for low-income people who otherwise have a difficult time accessing credit? Thea Knight, Associate Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute, comments. The CFPB has already rolled out uh, a proposal where it's a 60-page document where they discuss different ideas. It seems they've been sort of kicking around internally um, about how to regulate the payday loan industry. And they've now indicated that they're going to go through their formal rulemaking process, which would mean that they would come out with uh, draft rules. It would give the the public time to comment on them and then have uh, final rules down the road. So we're probably looking at a maybe six-month, maybe a little bit longer process. And what is the rationale uh, that the government has offered so far for saying this is this is the first big thing I feel like the CFPB has stuck its nose into? I mean, they've done some other work on uh, mortgages, and uh, they've been talking about some student loan issues. I, I know that they had gotten into the mortgage space pretty early. I think that was one of the first things they did. Um, I think that there's a there's a certain story you can tell about, about payday lending that's very sympathetic, which is low-income people get stuck in this cycle of debt. They think they're taking out just one loan. They wind up in debt over and over again. They can't repay it. Um, what winds what was supposed to be just a loan of you know four hundred dollars winds up being a loan where you pay you know the the borrower pays at least that much again in fees and so there's something very sympathetic about the story um, but I think when you dig into the details you see that it's not really the way it's being portrayed all right so what are what are some of the problems that we hear about APRs of like what it, what end up being like two hundred percent or more seven hundred percent yeah uh, because and that's it's it seems unconscionable on its face that you would be legally able to ask someone to pay that kind of interest rate. Sure. That statement is misleading, though, because what that's looking at is it's as though you took one loan out and paid that amount um, of interest, but it's actually several loans. So even if you're rolling it over, which means, you know, I take out a loan for $300, two weeks later when I get my paycheck, I can't repay the $300, so I take out another loan to pay the first loan. And each time you take out a loan, you pay a fee. So it might be something like, I think around $20 per $100 is a fairly typical rate. So if you look at it as each loan individually, that's not a a ridiculous rate. Um, It's a little bit of uh, hocus pocus to mix this together to make it look like, oh, it's this huge interest rate on this one loan. Because I think the average person would look at that rate and say, of course, that's ridiculous. I pay this amount on my multiple credit cards that I have, and then I just roll those over into a home equity loan that I take out. So it it seems like there's there's an element here of – of otherness, that is to say, the, the the lower income people that you know are this is their best option for making ends meet. So that's that's a big part of the picture is um, that these are not people who have a lot of other credit options. So I think oftentimes people who are reading these stories, especially if they themselves are middle class, um, have several credit cards. And the idea of trying to get $300 for something 
you know, I have about five different places I could go to get $300. Um, and none of them carry an interest rate of 700%. Um, I would say that payday loans also do not carry that interest rate, actually. But you know, I wouldn't wind up paying that much in fees. But that's because there are a lot of things that I have in my favor already. Um, I have a job here at Cato that pays a steady salary. My husband has a job um, that pays a good salary. We have a credit history. We haven't had you know the kinds of credit trouble or money trouble in the past that would ruin our credit history. Um, and we also have friends who are in similar situations and family. So we have a lot of friends and relatives we can turn to who are similarly financially secure. And if you don't have those options, um, you might be a bit stuck. And, and one other uh, thing I just want to discuss here is that I think that the comparison to credit cards the way they're used is apt. I think that sometimes the comparison to the interest rates misses the point a little bit. Um, but you know, I think it's very common for Americans to have a credit card and to use it continually for different purchases. And maybe you pay off the entire balance every month, which is great, but a lot of people don't. And they roll that over month after month. Um, and a lot of payday, lent, payday loan users seem to use the payday loan process as a revolving source of credit. So a revolver, which means you know you take out a loan, then you pay the pay that back and get out a new one, um, and a way to sort of manage cash flow. So a lot of the critics of payday loans talk about how people take out one loan after another after another, and it sounds like oh this is terrible. But if you look at it more as a revolver. As it a actu- line of credit. As a line of credit, it's actually being used very much the way other people use credit cards. So, uh, you know, uh, the Pew Charitable Trust came out with a study recently on how people use payday loans, and they highlighted the fact that, well, you know, usually people who are in favor of uh, access to payday loans talk about, oh, well, you know, it's a it's an emergency, somebody has to fix their car to get to work, or it's a medical emergency, but the majority of people are actually using this for everyday expenses. And I think that was presented as though it were damning to the payday loan industry, saying, no, it's not for emergencies, it's for day-to-day expenses. Actually, that to me seems like it argues more in favor of ensuring that people have access to this kind of credit. Um, In that study, they talked to people and said, you know, if you didn't have access to payday loans, what would you do? And uh, I think it was 80% of the respondents said they would cut back on expenses, including things like food and clothing. I don't want people to cut back on food because they don't have access to a certain credit product that seems to be working for them. People who have degrees, who have uh, are bankable, people who have access to lower-priced credit, they are a better risk for a, a giant company to extend to them a, a line of credit that goes on and on and on. Most of, most of those people don't pay their credit cards off every month, so they maintain this revolving uh, credit. So it, it is, is it just that it is being perceived as two very different products by CFPB and, and others who would if I understand it correctly, some people in Congress are arguing that uh, CFPB's regulation in this arena would actually undo payday lending as a business model. How fair is that claim? I mean, I think that that's a lot of what you hear from the industry, and you, know, you have to take that with a grain of salt. Um, but 
you know, one of the things is that the the same study from Pew notes that the way these loans are profitable is to ensure that people can take out multiple loans. And again, that was seen to be, I think, a bit of an indictment of the industry. But to my mind, it shows how small these profit margins are. So if if what you have is a model where if somebody comes in and takes out the loan for $100 and they pay a $20 fee on that, but you need them to take multiple loans for your business to be profitable, that means that $20 is really not that much money. I mean, that if you cut that $20 by more, they would need people to take out more loans. Um, They're really not operating with giant profit margins, even though it would sound like it if you you use this uh, annualized rate of interest. How accountable is CFPB broadly for what they're actually proposing as regulation. I remember that Congress gave them an enormous latitude and very little oversight. Congress doesn't even fund them directly. So what is what does CFPB look like and I guess what would what might happen if their regulation goes wrong? I mean, that's a big concern about the CFPB generally. Um, a lot of other financial regulators at the federal government are headed by commissions. So, for example, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the Federal Trade Commission. Um, and part of the reason for those structures, the difference between the commission and uh, the CFPB, a bureau, is a bureau is headed by a director, so one person, whereas a commission is headed by a commission, typically of five people, um, who uh, most of our commissions, only three of them can be from the same party. So it's built in that you have this diversity of viewpoints that's just not built into the CFPB. Um, And that's been very controversial even from its beginning, um, where you do have, you know, the the director, um, obviously an Obama appointee. His appointment was controversial because it was done, uh, you know, there was a question of whether it was a recess appointment or not. Um, And so... The question of accountability of the CFPB has been a huge point of contention ever since uh, it was created by Dodd-Frank in 2010. So, you know, when they put out these these regulations, obviously, when they have the proposed regulations, there'll be a lot of comments um, that people will send in. And, you know, I, I don't think that they don't look at them in good faith. I'm sure that the people, there are some very good people working with the CFPB, and I am sure that they will review the comments very carefully and consider um, whether there need to be any changes to the regulation. But this underlying Uh, I would say bias about uh, payday lending is kind of baked into the structure where you have one person who's the member of one party who's heading up the entire organization. That person sets a tone. And, you know, that might work in um, in an area where, in a uh, bureau that's not so contentious. But when the CFPB was created amidst so much controversy and there's such different opinions between the two parties about how it should run, um, having just the sole director really sets a tone um, that makes it a bit less accountable. When I spoke with Todd Zawicki at uh, George Mason Law School a long time ago about CFPB getting rolled out, we discussed, you know, what the agency was going to do and what its mandate was and stuff. And we seem to agree that the biggest problem with CFPB is that it only has one thing to do, and there is no uh, call to balance that goal 
with some other interest. That's true. Um, I mean, if you look at, again, um, the, using the SEC as a comparison, which regulates the capital markets and the securities industry, their mandate includes uh, capital formation and investor protection. So, you know, it's actually a three-part mandate. So you have all of these different components of the market that they're supposed to be looking at. And the CFPB really comes from this place that uh, consumers are getting ripped off. And I think that if you have that as your starting point, not as, look, we need a, uh, you know, good access to consumer financial products, that the consumer financial industry provides an absolutely essential service. And so we need to make sure that they are able to survive and do the kind of work they need to do with certain consumer protections. I mean, that would be a much more balanced approach um, rather than this mentality that it has, I think, coming out of the financial crisis. Thea Knight is Associate Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.